Well, good morning. A couple of people think it is. Good morning. Good morning. So um, my wife and I uh, have lived in British Columbia for almost 20 years. We moved in May of 2000. So we're just uh, months away from hitting our 20th anniversary in this uh, beautiful province. And the mountains to us are just as wondrous and majestic today as the day we moved here from Saskatchewan when we were in awe and wonder of, this, uh, of, this, of the surroundings that, uh, that were around us. And we will, I want to tell you this, we will never tire of looking at the mountains. But I remember a time uh, just after we moved from Saskatchewan, we landed in Richmond where I was an associate pastor at a church there. And I was going to a conference or a seminar or something like that one time with uh, a gentleman from our church. And uh, we were leaving Richmond, Steveston Highway, pulled onto the 99 to go north into Vancouver. And I, I just out loud, I just started praising God for the majesty of the North Shore Mountains. I, I saw them on that beautiful clear day, snow up there, it was in the fall. And uh, we're driving north and, and, and the guy that I'm with, he looked at me and he goes, to be honest with you, I don't even notice them anymore. He had uh, been born on the coast, grew up here his whole life. And he honestly didn't even notice the mountains anymore. And I'm like, really? How, how can you not notice this? And as we begin yet another Advent and look at the same passages that we do year after year after year, it is my desire, our desire here at Central, that you would never get tired of looking at the scriptures that we would be filled literally with awe and wonder once again as we sing, as we hear, as we consider the amazing work of God in bringing about the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we, as we look at the text that uh, Ali so wonderfully read for us uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, from Luke chapter one. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, the scriptures are gonna reappear as I work through this text this morning. Um, but a question that we had as we prepared for this uh, message here today to kick off Advent is, why start with John the Baptist? Why start with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist? Isn't Advent about looking forward to the coming of Jesus? Well, it is. The reason why Luke and other writers uh, start with John the Baptist is because if you back up just a few pages, Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have this prophet called, he was Italian, he was Malachi. Oh boy, it's terrible. Malachi, okay? <laughs> he wasn't Italian. All right. But there was this prophet who kind of ended off the Old Testament. And then God literally went silent for about 400 years. There was nothing. There was no words. There was no revelation. There was silence. And if you back up to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, this is what God says through his prophet. Behold, I will send my messengers. And I'll think about Luke 1 as, as Ali read it and as you just remember it. Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek. It, it, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about what was going on in that encounter and where Zechariah was. And the Lord and what he was doing. And the Lord who you seek, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter four, the, the last couple of verses. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now Luke, back to Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is why we're starting with John the Baptist. Today is a time of preparation to meet the Lord. Just as John the Baptist prepared the people to meet the Lord when he would arrive. It's been said that the Old Testament points to Jesus, all of it. And we just went through the the meta-narrative of scripture, the grand story in four chapters. And we saw week by week how all of it points to Jesus. And it's been said that the New Testament proclaims Jesus. Old Testament points to him, the New Testament proclaims him. It's all about Jesus. And John the Baptist does both. He points the way to Jesus and he proclaims Jesus all in one. And that's why he's the link, the bridge, and why Luke begins with him. So as we go through this text, you're going to see back and forth, there's sort of a duality to this text. You're going to see a personal side to to prophecy and God's work in people's lives. You're going to see how God worked in Zechariah and Elizabeth's lives. But then you're also going to see a very uh, uh, broad, um, big picture side to our text this morning. There's the small picture of what God is doing in individuals. Then there's the big picture of what he's doing in a nation and ultimately in the world and what he's doing today. So keep that in mind as we go through this text. I'm going to split up these verses, these uh, 20 verses or so. Uh, 21, I think, into six different sections, and I'm going to make some observations in each one, and I'm going to give you three things to take home today, all right? I, I know what you're thinking, nine different things he's going to talk about. I promise you you can uh, exit if I'm still talking at about 12.30, is that all right? <laughs> Good? Good, okay. Just kidding. All right. To make it extra interesting, you know that I love alliteration. Today, everything is double alliterated. I'm so excited. The first thing (laughs) that we see in this text is persistent problems. It's interesting. Verses five through seven. There's a few key uh, phrases that I want you to underline or highlight. The first is this, in the days of Herod. In the days of Herod, underline that. King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Underline this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Next thing to note, and both were advanced in years. So on um, Friday night, I had the wise idea of switching our mobile service provider. I have never had so many problems. Don't even get me going. Don't ask me later what they are, because I'm just going to get angry. (laughs) Okay, don't ask. (laughs) 
And you know what? In the grand picture, things like this, they're small. They won't persist. We're going to get them worked out after hours and hours and hours on, on hold with customer support. But they're going to get resolved. Those problems are small compared to what Zechariah, Elizabeth, the nation was facing at this point in history. In the days of Herod, Herod the Great, Herod was a nasty man. If you read in Matthew, you'll see, because he was actually called the king of the Jews, Herod. He had rule over this people. And so when there was muttering about the king of the Jews, he got awfully defensive and jealous, and he did some pretty bad things. Read Matthew. They had no child. And on top of having no child, if you're here this morning and you're a a couple, you've experienced the great sadness and and, uh, distress of being barren. On top of this, they were advanced in years and their hope was gone. They knew this wasn't going to happen. But I want you to note, right in the middle of this, these persistent problems that they, face, that they were facing, it, it, it says this, and they were both righteous, walking blamelessly. <laughs> Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth was the daughter of a priest. These were upright people serving God, walking blamelessly in his ways, and their barrenness was not a punishment from God. They were both doing the right thing and yet they lived with these circumstances. It was not a punishment from God. Rather, it may just have been God's plan that they were barren so that his glory would be revealed in extraordinary fashion. And you see, we tend not to think this way, do we? All we see is the pain, the problems. We put our head down and go, God, what are you up to? Next section. We're going to come back to some of this stuff. In the next section, I call priestly prayers. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. That Zechariah was chosen here uh, to offer incense in the temple was not a coincidence. God wanted him there. And, and it, it should fill us with awe and wonder as to how he got in there to offer incense to the Lord. There were 24 divisions of priests. And those divisions would only go to serve at the temple twice a year. I don't know where the other, you know, what is that? 24 times 2 is 48. So there's a little shortfall. I'm not sure. Maybe they had a special division that would finish the year off. I'm not sure what happened. But twice a year... Uh, one division would go in and from Sabbath to Sabbath they would serve the Lord at the temple and, and do the offerings. Now, it's been said, I've, heard, I've seen different numbers, but each division had anywhere from 300 to 1,000 priests. The priests were prolific. <laughs> there was a lot of them at this point in history, a lot of them. And so this whole division would go in. Zechariah, he was in this division of uh, Abijah, that was his clan, And out of all of these priests, his number was picked. He was chosen by lot to go in there. Out of potentially a thousand guys, you're the guy, Zachariah. You're the guy. Go in. That's amazing. It was so rare to be picked that if your number actually got picked and you were able to offer these kind of uh, offerings inside the temple, 
That was it for your lifetime. You were not allowed to go back in ever again. One shot, if you got called. Some never got called. Incense. Incense. (laughs) Significant, friends, that he was chosen to burn incense because incense is always associated with prayer. Um, My mind, when I was studying this, went immediately to Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, where there's this beautiful description of God's throne room and the angels and all that happens around God's throne. And the angels literally take burning coals and offer them as incense before the Lord, and the incense are mixed with the prayers of God's people. Did you know that? When you pray, when we pray, those prayers are going to the very throne of God where Jesus is sitting making intercession at the right hand of the Father, mixed with this incense as a beautiful aroma before God. God thinks our prayers are beautiful. They please him. They smell good. And so Zechariah went in to offer incense. And what were all the people doing outside as he was doing this? They were praying. At this time in history, the whole multitude, it says, were desperately praying and they were seeking the Lord for deliverance. They were looking forward to the Messiah as they never had before. 400 years of science, a tyrannical ruler named Herod who did awful things. And they said, Lord, when are you gonna come and deliver us from this bondage? All of the people were praying, including Zechariah. And I would say that given that Zechariah and Elizabeth were beyond childbearing age, they would not have been praying for their own child at this point. They too were praying for the deliverance of the nation of Israel who were under this oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. And when we read this passage, we think, our thoughts automatically go, they're praying for their own child. And I'm sure they had, but at this point, I do believe that they were praying for the nation's child. Commentators say that at this time in history, all Israelite women were praying that they would be the one to bear the Messiah. And there was a lot of women naming their children Jesus. (laughs) Because they so wanted to be the one that would usher in God's kingdom and his rule. And so in these days to be barren not only meant shame, as Elizabeth talks about here or as God talks about in this scripture but it would mean extra shame because she would not be the one to not only bear a child but to not bear the Messiah. Shame upon shame. Double shame. Number three. I call this providential provisions and I use it plurally because you see God's work in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life but you also see it again his work in the nation and ultimately in us. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall name him John and you will have joy and gladness and many, there's the plural part, and many will rejoice at his birth. This isn't just about you, John, uh, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, this is about the nation. It's about the world. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He must be set apart, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
God heard their prayers. He sent his right-hand angel to the right-hand side of the altar, the place of favor, the right-hand side, to deliver the good news. Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. His name will be John. And in a blink of an eye, centuries-old prophecies are fulfilled, and many will rejoice at his birth. Although Elizabeth and Zechariah's long-lost dream of having a baby was in that moment realized, it wasn't about Zechariah and Elizabeth. This was about a nation. This was about a people in bondage. This was about a people in need of deliverance. This is about you. This is about me. Providential redemption clear, uh, declared through a spirit-empowered, set-apart person, and many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at his birth. Um, I love the way Luke begins his gospel with the people praying, desperate, earnest prayers before God at the temple as incense is being offered to God. And I love how Luke ends. If you have a Bible, go to the very end. And, and you'll see in chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, exactly what the angel had said, that many would rejoice. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. This is Jesus. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What the angels said, that many will rejoice through you through, as a result of desperate prayers were answered actually came true. The Gospel of Luke begins with prayer and ends with praising. Number four, the next section is about a people prepared and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient of the to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Listen, salvation is not our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. However, preparing people is our work. Yes, the Holy Spirit prepares them as the Father draws them, but it is our responsibility to prepare people for the way of the Lord and what he wants to do in their lives. John would, with the same message and prophetic voice of, that Elijah had, he would declare the kingdom of God was at hand. He would call on people to repent and to be baptized, and it started with the family. And there's no message more relevant to our time than this, that fathers would, would show, would, they would be involved, they would show genuine, soft, spiritual concern for their children. And that rebellion, rebellious children's hearts would soften to the Lord. <laughs> right? There's no message that is more relevant for our time than this. And we can be assured that with a message like that, our voice too will be like a voice crying in the wilderness. But like John, Elijah, and Elijah before him, we must live counter to the culture. Have you ever read about how Elijah and John the Baptist lived? I mean, they would have been considered a little cuckoo back in their day, right? The things they did, the things they wore, how they conducted themselves. Counterculture. 
And we, like them, must live counter to the culture and to deliver the good news of Isaiah chapter 40. As John was concerned with the coming of Jesus and preparing the way for a people to meet him, so Advent is about the coming of Jesus and preparing the people around us to meet him. And I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared? (laughs) Are you personally prepared for what God wants to do in your heart now? And are you actively preparing others? Do you know your neighbors? Do you have friends, family, who need to be delivered from Satan's power and from sin? First Chronicles 16 verse 8 says this, Give praise to the Lord. Make his name known. Tell the nations what he has done. He's calling us to prepare people for good news. Number five, all of a sudden the plot takes a little twist and we see a precarious predicament. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day Uh, until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which were fulfilled in their time and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple and when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Zechariah went from this guy who was zealous for God, serving God, full of faith, full of holy awe and fear and wonder at this angel who showed up to speak to him. He went from that to fickle, faltering awfully quick, didn't he? But he wasn't the, remem- he wasn't the first to do this. <laughs> you remember a couple of people named Abraham and Sarah? And he won't be the last because we're not any different. Got to love the angel's response. He gives them the good news. Uh, Zechariah says he he doesn't believe. How is this going to happen? I'm an old guy. This is not possible. I'm Gabriel. (laughs) I love that. I am Gabriel. I have this reputation. Do you remember Daniel? Yeah, I'm that guy. (laughs) I'm that guy. I spoke for God then too. And nobody's seen me since. I stand in the presence of God. That's quite a resume, isn't it? This is the same angel of God who serves God at his right hand who was sent to deliver amazing prophecies through Daniel and he hadn't been heard since till now. And, he would sh- and he'll show up in the coming weeks as he appears to Mary. Behold the wondrous mystery. This was the first major thing in 400 years and the people outside are going, what's taken so long? There must be something really unusual happening inside the temple. And sure enough, they came out and John was unable to speak. The irony of this is that Zechariah receives the best news possible that there's gonna be someone who will point the people to this deliverer that they've been waiting centuries for, longing for, praying for, expecting, and he can't talk about it. 
and he can't talk about it. The Apostle James in the scripture calls the doubter an unstable person. Um, And as I consider what's going on here and the fact that Zechariah, who is far more righteous uh, person than I am, um, I pray that the Lord will have mercy on me and help me in my unbelief and my doubt. Uh, This week as I was preparing, I was just doing some study on unbelief and the seriousness of it and I came across Charles Spurgeon's sermon from 1855 called The Sin of Unbelief. If you Google that, read the sermon. We'll knock your socks off. I wish I could actually just give you the sermon right now, but that would take us till about 1.30. Spurgeon, in the introduction to his sermon called The Sin of Unbelief, calls unbelief, quote, Satan's firstborn child. Wow. He doesn't pull any punches, this guy. And he said, you know why unbelief is the mother of all sins? It gives, literally gives birth to every other sin that's out there is because from the beginning, it was unbelief. It was unbelief where Satan came to Eve and to Adam and said, did God really say this? Are you really gonna believe him? And they didn't. And that's when sin came into the world and we've been struggling to hear the right voice ever since. And we've been struggling to hear the truth ever since. And Spurgeon said that there is only one sin that will keep people out of heaven and condemn them to hell. There's only one. This unbelief. He said murder, adultery, lust, lying, theft, all of the other sins, idolatry that the scripture names are forgivable, but the only thing that isn't is unbelief because it will send you to hell. Let's move on. I'm gonna come back to that as well. Number six, the promise is procured. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God is faithful. Amen? God is faithful. What he said, he did, as he always does. Here's a few takeaways for us today. I want to leave you with three thoughts as we go from here. Number one, we need to walk blamelessly in the midst of problems. We like to wait for the circumstances to be just right, don't we? You know, we think of uh, we think of problems as being well, problems. (laughs) They're bad, right? Problems are bad. That's human nature, but it's not God's nature. And I want us to hear this carefully. God does his best work in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. He does his best work when things look impossible, difficult. So we need to embrace those circumstances and not run from them. That's the kingdom of God. It's the opposite of what we would want to do. Disappointments, failures, problems, rejections, fears will always exist. 
And I want to let you know that righteous people have them too. Zechariah and Elizabeth's problem didn't go away with this pregnancy. In fact, it was Herod's son who would later behead their son, the one that they longed for. But truth prevailed and Jesus became famous. And that's what matters. What do we tend to do when there's problems, when life sucks? (laughs) What do we do? We blame, don't we? We blame others, we blame God, we blame. I've been there, I've done that. I confess, I'm a blamer. What God wants us to be is blameless, not blameful. Walking obediently without blame is one of the greatest witnesses we have. And our job, like John, is to point people to Jesus and proclaim Jesus, and we can't do that if we're not walking blamelessly. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means in the midst of all of the stuff that we deal with in our lives, and believe me, there is so much stuff. I hear it every, almost every day of every week. And it becomes so burdening sometimes, but God is able to do in us amazing things. Second Peter 3, 9 through 14 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Second thing that we can do today is to take God at his word. Can I encourage you today, no matter what's going on in your life, to trust him, to keep praying, to keep seeking him. God speaks to us all the time. People, people often say, what is God saying to me? What is his will? And my first question is, how long have you been here? He speaks to us all the time. And we say, are you sure? God, are you you sure? How? Oh, how we need a rebuke. I need a rebuke. What's your approach to scripture? Is this just some guy's thoughts or do we actually believe this is the very word of God? Um, Psalm 119 Psalmist says, all your words are true and all your laws and and your just laws will stand forever. Jesus, when speaking to his father, John 17 said about his disciples, to his disciples, he said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus was declared to be the living word of God. He is truth. Colossians 3 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I want to encourage you today, be in God's word. Take God at his word. Believe. Number three, and I close with this. God is doing something. He responds to prayer. Our prayers are mixed with the incense at the altar and the throne of God right now. 
Yes, John was the herald of all heralds, but John is not the main character. It is about Jesus and God is doing something right now. And what God does, though often perplexing in our lives, is even downright frightening at times, is not random and it's not by chance. What God is doing right now is what he's doing. After 400 years, boom, something new, something wondrous, something amazing happens. And as we go through this Christmas, if it's your 49th Christmas or your first Christmas or your 10th Christmas or your 80th Christmas and you do the usual family gatherings and the work parties and the shopping and the cooking and the baking and all of the preparations, remember that God is working. And his greatest work is summarized in Elizabeth's declaration, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. This, friends, this was not about Elizabeth. It was not the social reproach that she faced of infertility and shame. This was the approach of eternal shame that we all face without Christ. And so today we lit the candle of hope and I, want to, I just want to nail it home that God is moving. There is hope. The way is being prepared. God's glory is filling his temple once again. This temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, his church, that through his spirit in us, hearts will be well prepared for the hope that he longs to bring to all people. That's the message of Advent. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word today. It is so living, so active, so powerful, and I thank you, Lord, that today, this week, I was just in awe at how all of these things came together at the right moment in which Jesus would be ushered into history. The message that is still true for each one of us here today. So I pray, God, that you would help us in our unbelief. That we would take you at, our, at your word. That you would help us to walk before you blamelessly as we point people to the Savior. Oh, Jesus, thank you for what you're doing among us. We long for more. We long for more. In our lives, in Agassiz, in Harrison, in this whole area, and in the world. We long for more. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.